and the moment the southern troops emerged for the charge, all would be sure to pour upon them a fire that no troop could withstand. General Lee presently appeared riding along the line. The cheers which always rose where he came rolled far, and he was compelled to lift his hat more than once. He conferred with Jackson, and the two, going toward the left, met Longstreet, with whom they also talked. Then they separated, and Jackson returned to his own position. Harry, who had followed his general at the proper distance, never heard what they said, but he believed that they had discussed the possibility of a night attack, and then had decided in the negative. When Jackson returned to his own force, the twilight was thickening into night, and as darkness sank over the field, the appalling fire of the Union artillery ceased. Thirteen thousand dead or wounded Union soldiers had fallen, and the Southern loss was much less than half. All of Harry's comrades and friends had escaped this battle uninjured, yet many of them believed that another battle would be fought on the morrow. Harry, however, was not one of these. He remembered some words that had been spoken by Jackson in his presence. We can defeat the enemy here at Fredericksburg, but we cannot destroy him, because he will escape over his bridges while we are unable to follow. Nevertheless, the young men and boys were exultant. They did not look so far ahead as Jackson, and they had never before won so great a victory with so little loss. Harry, sent on a message beyond Deep Run, found the Invincibles, cooking their suppers on a spot that they had held throughout the day. They had several cheerful fires burning, and they saluted Harry gladly. "'A great victory, Harry,' said Happy Tom. "'Yes, a great victory,' interrupted Colonel Leonidas Talbot. "'But, my friends, what else could you have expected? "'They walked straight into our trap. "'But I have learned this day to have a deep respect for the valor of the Yankees.' The way they charged up Marie's Hill in the face of certain death was worthy of the finest troops that South Carolina herself ever produced. Well, that's saying a great deal, Leonidas, said Lieutenant Colonel Hector St. Hilier, but it is true. Harry talked a little with the two colonels, and also with Langdon and St. Clair. Then he returned to his own headquarters. Both armies making ready for battle tomorrow, if it should come, slept on their arms, while the dead and wounded yet lay thick in the forest and on the slopes and plain. But Harry was not among those who slept, at least not until after midnight. He and Dalton sat at the door of Jackson's tent, awaiting possible orders. Jackson knew that Burnside, with a hundred thousand men yet in line and no artillery loss, was planning another attack on the morrow, despite his frightful losses of the day. The news of it had been sent to him by Lee, and Lee in turn had learned it from a captured orderly bearing Burnside's dispatches. But neither Harry nor Dalton knew anything of Burnside's plans. They were merely waiting for an errand upon which Jackson should choose to send them. Several other staff officers were present, and as Jackson wrote his orders, 
he gave them in turn to be taken to those for whom they were intended. Harry, after three such trips of his own, sat down again near the door of the tent and watched his great leader. Jackson sat at a little table on a cane-bottomed chair, and he wrote by the light of a single candle. His clothing was all awry, and he had tossed away the gold-braided cap. His face was worn and drawn, but his eyes showed no signs of weariness. The body might have been weak, but the spirit of Jackson was never stronger. Harry knew that Jackson, after victory, wasted no time exulting, but was always preparing for the next battle. The soldiers, both in his own division and elsewhere, were awakened by turns, and willing thousands strengthened the southern position. More and deeper trenches were constructed, new abatis were built, and the stone wall was strengthened yet further. Formidable as the southern line had been today, Burnside would find it more so on the morrow. After midnight, Jackson, still in his gorgeous uniform and with his boots and spurs on too, lay down on his bed and slept for about three hours. Then he aroused himself, lighted his candle, and wrote an hour longer. Then he went to the bedside of the dying Greg and sat a while with him, the staff remaining at a respectful distance. When they rode back, they were mounted again. They passed along the battle front, and the sadness which was so apparent on Jackson's face affected them. It was far toward morning now, and the enemy was lighting his fires on the plain below. The dead lay where they had fallen, and no help had yet been given to those wounded too seriously to move. It had been a tremendous holocaust, and with no result. Harry knew now that the North would never cease to fight disunion. The South could win separation only at the price of practical annihilation for both. The night was very raw and chill, and not less so now that morning was approaching. The mists and fogs, which, as usual, rose from the Rappahannock, made Harry shiver at their touch. In the hollows of the ridges, which the wintry sun seldom reached, great masses of ice were packed, and the plain below, cut up the day before by wheels and hooves and footsteps, was now like a frozen field of ploughed land. The staff heard enough through the fogs and mists to know that the army of the Potomac was awake and stirring. The southern army also arose, lighted its fires, cooked and ate its food, and waited for the enemy. Before it was yet light, Harry, on a message to Stuart, rode to the top of Prospect Hill with him, and they sat there on their horses. The sun cleared away the fog and mist, and they saw the army of the Potomac, drawn up in line of battle, defiant and challenging, ready to attack or be attacked. Harry felt a thrill of admiration that he did not wish to check. After all, the Yankees were their own people, bone of their bone, and their courage must be admired. The Army of the Potomac, too, was learning to fight without able chiefs. The young colonels and majors and captains could lead them, and they were there, 
after their most terrible defeat, grim and ready. The lion's wounded, but he isn't dead by any means, said Harry to Stuart. Not by a great deal, said Stuart. There was much hot firing by skirmishers that day, and artillery duels at long range. But the northern army, which had fortified on the plain, would not come out of its entrenchments, and the southern soldiers also stuck to theirs. Burnside, who had crossed the river to join his men, had been persuaded at last that a second attack was bound to end like the first. The next day Burnside sent in a flag of truce, and they buried the dead. The following night Harry, wrapped to his eyes in his great cloak, stood upon Prospect Hill and watched one of the fiercest storms that he had ever seen rage up and down the valley of the Rappahannock. Many of the southern pickets were driven to shelter, while the whole southern army sought protection from the deluge. The army of the Potomac, still a hundred thousand strong and carrying all its guns, marched in perfect order over the six bridges that it had built, breaking the bridges down behind it and camping in safety on the other side. The river was rising fast under the tremendous rain, and the southern army could find no fords, even though it marched far up the stream. Fredericksburg was won, but the two armies, resolute and defiant, gathered themselves anew for other battles, as great or greater. End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by Michael Packard.